Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome along to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist. It is my great, great pleasure to have with me Eric Pedersen. Now, Eric is the president and founder of Ideal Fish. Yep, you heard me right. Ideal Fish, based in Waterbury, Connecticut. How convenient that it's Waterbury. Did you do it on purpose? We're going to find out, actually. Ideal Fish has created the Ideal Fish ecosystem and grow sustainable, clean, fresh cage-free fish aiming to feed and support local communities. I am super excited to find out more about what you're up to as you help the oceans heal and recover and, of course, support and feed local communities. Eric, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thank you, Claire. I'm, of course, delighted to be here and very supportive of your mission to bring oddball companies like Ideal Fish into the public domain. So... Eric, you're one of the normal ones. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I have to listen to some of your other podcasts then because <laughs> it sounds like they're extremely interesting. I've got to be honest. I am absolutely fascinated by what you are doing. And I want you to start right at the beginning, first of all, and tell me a little bit about you. Before we get on to Ideal Fish, how did you get into creating the Ideal Fish ecosystem? Well, it was kind of a, an odd process. I actually bought an aquarium for my children when they were very young, thinking that they would find, you know, tropical fish to be kind of an interesting hobby. I enjoyed a lot when I was their age. They were probably, you know, somewhere between five and 10 years old. And what happened was the kids had very little interest, you know, in the age of digital, you know, video games and electronic entertainment. They had very little interest in the aquarium. I, on the other hand, you know, became obsessed with the whole thing and went through the usual progression where you start off with a little freshwater tank and a guppy or two and the scuba diver that's got the bubbles that blow out of it. And you move on to a planted tank where you, you dispense with all the plastic ornaments, but you've got, you know, exotic freshwater, you know, aquatic vegetation and some more interesting fish. You know, on then to a saltwater tank with, you know, rocks and things like that. And finally, the disease progresses to the point where you've got a full-blown reef tank uh, with lights and very sophisticated water conditioning and filtration. And you were spending a considerable amount of your time maintaining this whole thing. And I was, you know, completely addicted to this thing and became really amazed at how systems like this can organize around supporting life. And at the time, I was working uh, as a satellite CEO, helping commercialize a water filtration technology company based in Pueblo. And I was flying out to Colorado, you know, four days a week, leaving Sunday nights, coming back Thursday evenings to, you know, kind of confuse children in, in a 
perpetually perturbed wife who you know justifiably was upset that I was abdicating my parenting duties for the better part of a week. So I began thinking about what would combine my interest in water filtration and technology and all that I had learned about aquarium science and my historical love of fish and fishing and eating fish and being around fish and came across research aquaculture really that way, expecting it to be an already big industry and a a significant, you know, way in which Americans are supplied fish. And what I found, you know, really was that there are very few facilities like ours and that the industry has had kind of a spotty startup. And that was all it took for me, Claire, to get excited about it, to look forward to the challenge and try to start figuring out how to make a successful recirculating aquaculture company. So long answer, but that's basically how my journey progressed. And, and we've been at this now for 10 years, and we've really been able to achieve the things we set out to do. We have a very viable company. We have a great tasting fish. It's a non-indigenous fish that is native to the Mediterranean that we can now grow in this country without worrying about escapees and you know invasive species contaminating Long Island Sound. It's been a journey, but you know, I'm really happy that things have worked out. I've been very fortunate in the way things have gone, pandemic notwithstanding, and we're now looking at expanding. I can't believe, I love the fact that this story started with you and goldfish. I love that. I love that so much. And I could really visualize the escalation from tank to tank to heaters and filtration systems and how magical. And what do your kids think of it now? That's what I'd like to know. What do the kids think of it now? Well, I think they, uh, they're they actually very excited that research aquacultures kind of came out of a father-child activity, you know, some 10, 15 years ago. One of the first things I did as I was thinking about this industry was I built kind of laboratory scale system in the basement of my house. (laughs) I bet your wife loved you. (laughs) I can tell you uncategorically that she did not like me much (laughs) at the time. And and particularly because I didn't mention it to her right away. It was kind of going on downstairs. And little by little, she began to notice that, you know, uh, kitchen implements like colanders and pots and pans, which I was using in the system, began going, quote unquote, missing. So one day she skipped down the steps into the basement to discover this monstrosity that was taking up about 200 square feet and had about a thousand gallons of water in it and uh, demanded an explanation. Yeah, I bet. But what was interesting was, you know, she went from being, you know, kind of a skeptical, maybe even somewhat cynical about this to being, you know, kind of my most ardent supporter and promoters and to the point where she would, whenever we would have guests over for dinner, she would lead the dinner party down into the basement and show them (laughs) this this insane thing that her husband had created, you know, replete with uh, various kitchen implements serving alternative purposes. She's fully on board and has been, you know, an ardent supporter from the get-go. So again, I've been very fortunate for many reasons. Very much so, very much so. She sounds like the patron saint of wives, that's for sure. Incredible. Yep. So, Ideal Fish, based in Waterbury, that's not lost on me, by the way. Describe the facility and how does it look? For a listener who is listening to this, who doesn't understand what the perfect fish ecosystem is, describe it for me. Sure. So just imagine a very large warehouse building. We're at about 70,000 square feet. 
So that's about the size of two large supermarkets kind of, you know, put together in a rectangular area. And we have 28 large tanks, 12 of which hold close to 25,000 gallons of water, which is the size of very large public swimming pool. And we have a 10,000 square foot room that is dedicated to cleaning, conditioning, and recirculating the water in those 28 tanks. And that has extremely high-tech you know, equipment and technology that removes solid waste, which in this case is the poop and the uneaten feed, and removes waste that is suspended in the water column because it's too small to settle out. And then it converts ammonia, which fish secrete from their gills and from their feces and is harmful, in fact, toxic to fish, it converts that to nitrate, which is not, Mm -hmm. and that is known as a bioreactor. And then we have several different disinfection systems, including ozonation and ultraviolet light reactors. And finally, that water is reoxygenated and pumped back into our culture tanks. Each one will have somewhere around 20,000 fish in them at one time of varying sizes. Wow. So uh, if you can imagine, you know, an enormous warehouse with tanks that rise about 10 feet up off the floor that contain 20,000 fish swimming in a circle around the tank, feeding, and then at night they actually bed down and they sleep, growing until they're big enough to harvest, which is a little bit over a pound for us. Bronzino, which is the fish we cultivate, it's also known as European sea bass. Yes typically is enjoyed at a little bit over a pound. At that size, you can get two pretty healthy fillets off the fish, and you can also prepare it as it often is, as a whole fish, yes. broiled in the oven and served on the plate, eyes, ears, and nose all together. I have to say, I used to live in Spain, and uh, in Spanish it's lubina, and I yep. absolutely love sea bass. And one of the things they do with it there is they often do, they encrust it in salt, at your table yeah. and then crack it open at the table. So yeah. it's fascinating. How did you come up with growing, I guess, that fish? The sort of lead up to developing the business plan for Ideal Fish was to do quite a bit of market research. And so I really started with the market and I went out and I talked to chefs, I talked to restaurateurs, I talked to people behind the ice seafood ice case at grocery stores, I went to fish markets. I went to the distributors and talked with them. And and basically I asked, look, if you could get access to a locally grown saltwater fish, what would it be? And, you know, I got lots of answers, but the answer I got most commonly and most often and most vehemently was European sea bass or bronzino. And the reasons for it are that it's a very popular fish. It is growing in popularity very rapidly, particularly in the Northeast of the United States. And the fish is all farmed and it's farmed in the Mediterranean in large sea cages, which you know have substantial negative environmental impacts. So uh, the idea of being able to produce a local Bronzino right here in the middle of the Northeast market that we serve and do it in an environmentally sustainable way where we don't pollute the environment. And Claire, I'm, I suspect you're, you're aware that we capture and recover all the waste products of fish production, the poop, the uneaten feed, the tailings, the trimmings, 
and that these are used to create composted organic fertilizer that we supply, you know, field farmers in the Northeast as an alternative to the petrochemical based fertilizers, which are uh, far more toxic to the farming operation. That's really what it was. And Bronzino is a high-priced fish that we think we can make less high-priced over time. And the chefs, restaurateurs, distributors, grocery store procurement people were all in favor of it, liked the idea, and, and that's where I got started. There's also been some historical precedent for growing uh, Bronzino in recirculating systems, and that was an important thing to me. I didn't want to cultivate a fish that I wasn't sure would, would adapt well to a closed containment system, and our Bronzino do very well. An excellent choice because it tastes incredible as well, which is always useful. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. So tell me a little bit, if I assume I'm an absolute idiot, which you wouldn't be far from the truth, the (laughs) state of our oceans is a huge concern and should be top of mind for for most people. You are obviously not contributing to to that and you are helping in your literature I've read about healing the oceans. How bad is the problem? Well, I think the problem is pretty bad and is multifaceted. You have extreme pressure on wild capture fisheries to the point where, you know, there are certain species like Atlantic salmon that simply don't exist anymore. All the fish that we call Atlantic salmon are now, you know, farmed variations of salmon, generally farmed in sea cages. And then, of course, there's the North Atlantic cod, which, you know, used to be so plentiful off of the coast of the eastern seaboard here in the United States that fishermen would joke about how the fish would just jump into their boats voluntarily. It was just such a tremendous fishery, which now has been so overfished that the uh, genetic diversity of the species of uh, New England cod is so reduced that the population is having trouble recovering every time they get hit with some kind of disease or pathogen contamination in the ocean. The population, because they're all genetically similar, get hit very hard. And so whenever fish populations dwindle to a small number of their original size, the lack of genetic diversity really works against the recovery of that population of fish. And we have lots of fish that are on the red watch list now as a result of overfishing. And, and, uh, and wild capture fishing can you know, create extremely bad effects on the ocean habitat in which these fish live. The trawlers you know, often can destroy the structure on the ground the ocean bed as they, you know, drag nets back and forth, capturing the fish. And oftentimes there's waste produced by these trawlers and and lost fishing nets. And, and I'm sure everybody's aware of the plastic island that is floating around the center of the Pacific, yeah. where a lot of this waste ends up. And, and this is an, an enormous environmental concern. So, you know, we don't talk about farmed, you know, beef anymore. We don't talk about farmed chicken or pork. There's no reason to talk about farmed fish as though it were in some way Mm. inferior to the wild product. In fact, I think, you know, the reality is farm fish is quite superior to the the wild product. 
It doesn't contain mercury and PCBs to the same extent that wild fish do. It doesn't have microplastics, which are now becoming of greater concern. Mm -hmm. And because the fish can be farmed right in the middle of the communities that the farmers serve, it's far fresher. Bronzino that comes over from the Mediterranean is upwards of a week old. So that means as a consumer, you have a few days to eat it before it goes bad. And we've, we've all had the experience of <laughs> going to the fish market, you know, bringing home a beautiful fish with the intention of eating it that evening. And then plans change, you go out to dinner, you come back the next day, and you unwrap it and suddenly it doesn't smell so beautiful anymore. And, and this is a common experience here in the United States where we don't have access to the kind of fresh seafood that Europeans find far more common. And I think that's in part why, you know, we eat only 15 pounds of seafood each year and 60 to 80 pounds of beef and pork. Whereas in Europe, it's the other way around. It's 60 pounds of seafood a year because they have good quality seafood that's fresh and reliable and that can, you know, hold up in the, in the refrigerator for a few days. I love that. We think there is a huge opportunity for research aquaculture in this country. It's funny to think about there being any industry in the United States that is so far behind the economic development curve that other countries are doing it better. But aquaculture, I think, is really the last business final frontier available in this country. We've developed just about everything else. We lead the world in just about everything else. We are trailing significantly behind the rest of the world in domestic, reliable, aquacultured fish production. So right in my backyard, I have this enormous opportunity to really grow and develop our business. I think that's the thing as well, isn't it? America is such a vast country. The one thing we do have a considerable amount of is space. So this is something, you know, that really could just be the tip of the iceberg. I do have a soft question for you, Eric, and forgive me, right? The, the, the softy in me has to ask, right? So I go to the supermarket, I only buy happy chickens. I buy eggs that are only from happy chickens. How happy yep. are your fish? So that's a great question. I'm glad you asked because it was one of the things that I needed to understand when I built my basement system. I wanted to know how I was going to react to farming. I'm an investment banker by training and by trade. Now you kept that quiet, Eric. This would have been yeah. a very different conversation if you told me that <laughs> early on. <laughs> well, I try not to let too many people know. So <laughs> I've just assumed that not get out. But <laughs> okay. I'm in recovery and I, I've decided that, you know, I think the food business offers some things that resonate more profoundly with me than the capital markets. Although I'm the first to tell you that Wall Street is of vital importance, obviously, to this country and to the allocation of capital to businesses like mine that have an economic proposition and also a societal and planetary proposition. But the fish, unlike chickens, unlike cows, unlike pigs, fish like to swim together. It's their natural defense against predation. That's why they school. They, they don't have the wherewithal, Bronzino don't have the wherewithal to fend off a larger predatory fish. Their only mechanism is to bunch together in tight concentrations. We have an animal that actually likes to be in concentrations with other animals, similar animals, and actually becomes stressed 
when they are at too low a density because they can't take shelter, they can't hide from a predator. And so what we do at Ideal Fish is we grow our fish in stocking densities that relate closely to the schooling densities in which these fish live in the crowded or stressed or in, in, in some other non-natural way. Now, of course, they're in a tank, so there are limits on where they can go. But so long as they are in clean, healthy, conditioned water that is optimized and stable, the fish don't stress out and they stay healthy and they grow much more quickly in our system than they do in the wild. And they're much more efficient converters of feed than they are in the wild. In the wild, they have to hunt and chase their prey down in order to get that next meal. Whereas in our facility, they're hanging out doing the backstroke getting fed, you know, several times a day and don't have to go and expend energy locating their next dinner. So when you talk about the efficient conversion of ocean resources, wild fish require 10 times as much feed in the form of other fish than our fish do because the wild fish have to exert energy to get their next meal, whereas our fish don't. We do have them swim against the current so that they are developing musculature and, and healthy body and body textures, but they're That's not having... I was going to ask you about that. I used to live in the Mediterranean, uh, not in the sea. Obviously, that would be a bit wet. Yep. I'd be quite wrinkly by now. But I used to see very, very clearly the difference between farm-raised salmon, for example, and wild salmon. And the definition, the muscle even the color of it. So it's really interesting that you should say that they swim against a current in order to develop and grow that muscle, I guess, and to make them yeah, a we're, fish. We're very focused on the texture of the fish as well as the color, as well as obviously the flavor, the salinity. And, uh, you know, we want the whole experience for the consumer to be a positive culinary and gastronomic experience. And that starts with creating a fish that is raised comfortably, that does not have a stressful life and can grow without, you know, any type of additive in the water or, you know, let alone antibiotics or growth hormones, which, you know, we, uh, we simply can't abide. So super clean yeah, and they, happy fish. I think you would ask them, they would say they're, they're pretty happy. They have one bad day, <laughs> but the, the rest <laughs> of the time, they're pretty happy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So tell me then, how did you first hear about conscious capitalism here in Connecticut? How did you first uncover the, the, the chapter? Members of the board contacted me. We were introduced through a mutual colleague who was helping me certify Ideal Fish as a B Corp. And as you and your listeners may know, B Corp is a certification uh, company that, in a very rigorous way, evaluates the environmental, social, human resource, production attributes of companies and assigns them a numerical rating based on whether the companies are environmentally sustainable and do good things for people and for the planet and are efficient users of resources and treat employees well and look for similar attributes in their suppliers. And it's actually a very, I'm sure they wouldn't mind if I use the word arduous process 
to obtain B Corp certification. The agency takes it very seriously and thoroughly investigates and researches and validates the answers that you provide to a very long due diligence process. And I met members of the Connecticut chapter of Conscious Capitalism through professionals that were helping me with the B Corp certification. And it was apparent, obviously, that we had a lot of overlap in terms of our ideas and values, you know, everything from sustainability to treating employees in a empowering way and creating a product that is, you know, good for people. And so I was asked to participate in a year-long program, which helped train CEO-level leaders, C-suite-level leaders on elements of conscious capitalism and how to make their companies more conscientious. And so that's really how how I got to meet the board and honored to say that I was asked recently to join the board. And I'm now on the board of the Connecticut chapter of Conscious Congratulations. I didn't know that. Congratulations to you. So with Ideal Fish, Eric, what's the future hold? What are you going for? What's the next five years look like for you? We have survived the pandemic. We have validated our business model and our investment proposition. We are very close to raising a significant amount of capital with which we intend to expand our business. And while we will always keep our center of operations and our headquarters in Waterbury, which has been a wonderful place, as you correctly identified, not only in name, but in substance to grow a recirculating aquaculture company. We intend to be a national company, certainly within five years, to have built out a large national platform where we can serve many major cities throughout the United States with fresh, locally grown uh, Bronzino. And in the next 10 years, we expect to expand internationally. And we believe, and I thoroughly believe, that research aquaculture could very well become one of the largest entrepreneurial opportunities that uh, we've seen, you know, in the last uh, century. I think it's an enormous, you know, sleeping giant right now. And that as technology develops, as the demand for healthy seafood develops, that we will find the need for facilities like ours to expand rapidly. Fantastic. I wish you all the luck in the world and I very much look forward to recapping in the next podcast that we do to talk more about your work with the board and of course the Conscious Leaders Network. Eric, it has been an absolute privilege. If people want to connect with you and find out some more, is there a website or a LinkedIn that they should reach out to you on? Search for me on LinkedIn, Eric Pedersen, Ideal Fish. And I always reply to to messages, so I I would look forward to that. Fantastic. Eric, thank you so much for being a part of The Curious Capitalist. I very much look forward to our next one and uh, digging a little bit deeper into what makes you tick and your company. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. I look forward to it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about conscious capitalism, Or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding redrockbranding.com